Luke chapter 14 in your Bibles this morning. Just a straw poll. Any of you ever had tasteless salt? Like you go to put salt on something and you taste it and you can't taste it. Nobody ever had that happen? The thought of tasteless salt. It's almost like the thought of dry water, isn't it? It just doesn't work. But salt can become tasteless. And in fact, tasteless salt was very common in Jesus' day and it becomes for him a parable of a central truth of Christianity. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus has been talking about the cost of discipleship. Discipleship, um, he warns us we have to count the cost before we become his followers. In fact, if we claim to be his followers, if we're trying to be his followers, if we wish to walk in his steps, we have to be willing to sacrifice everything. Family relationships must become secondary to Christ. Our own lives must be put on the chopping block if the call of Christ compels us. And we have to be willing to lay them aside up front. We have to be willing, knowing the cost ahead of time, to be able to put those things down in order to attain Christ. Who is going to start a large building project without figuring out what the budget is? and whether they can afford it. It'd be a laughing stock. It'd just be a foundation, maybe part of a wall, and that would be it. It would look ridiculous. What, what, who, who among us would take an army and go to war with a bigger, stronger army? We wouldn't do that. Now, you might be saying to yourself, I don't have an army. Okay, fine. Who, who, wants, to, uh, who wants to get in a sparring match with Chuck Norris? Yeah, I didn't think so. You see... We have to be willing to count the costs ahead of time. And we have to be willing to pay the price in order to be disciples. That's what Jesus has been talking about. And it's that idea that brings us to this notion of tasteless salt. Read with me. In fact, stand as we read together. Luke 14, 34 through 35. Short verses. Just a couple of verses, but man, they'll hit you in the stomach and then they'll pour salt on the wound. Luke 14, 34 and 35. Salt is good, Jesus says. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Father, may we who have ears hear what you are speaking to us this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the transformation that it can bring into our lives. God, help us to get out of the way and let it transform us. Help us to hear it and to obey it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Discipleship is about total commitment. There's no room for error here. There's no room for, I'll kind of give some and kind of not give some. God talks to the Israelites and he commands them this way in Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. As one of my seminary professors said, love God with everything. Love God with everything else. And whatever's left, love him with that too. There's no room for any part of you that is not to love God. There's no room for you to hold things aside and say, well, I'm just going to love God with this part of my life and not with that part of my life. Discipleship does not work that way. It is a total commitment. That's why Jesus, by the way, said this is the greatest commandment. Because if you're willing to do this, if you're willing to love God with everything in you, you're going to follow his laws. You're going to be obedient. 
You're going to fulfill the whole law if you love God first. And you want to do the second commandment, love your neighbor. You got to know how to love first. You see, if you're half-hearted, you need not apply for discipleship. If you're unwilling to make difficult choices, if you're unwilling to make sacrifices of precious things, if you're unable to give up those things that are most precious to you, if you're unable to afford such a high entrance fee, then discipleship is not for you. We have dumbed down Christianity to the point to where anybody, oh, all you have to do is say a prayer. All you have to do is walk an aisle. All you have to do is want to love Jesus and you're saved and then you're good to go. And we wonder why the largest Protestant denomination, Southern Baptists, have baptized less people than the year before for 20 years straight. Did you know that? 20 years. I wonder why that is. Because our Christianity is, it's not discipleship, not the way Jesus describes it. You see, maybe our problem is that we have been too lackadaisical with faith. We've, we've acted like just assenting with our heads, just believing. That, that doesn't, not active believing, not, not believing that results in obedience, not not repentance that not only turns away from sin, but turns toward God wholeheartedly. That, that just the kind of belief of, yeah, I'll agree with that, is all it takes. That's not true. You see, we are willing to confess with our mouths, but so oftentimes we're not willing to confess with our lives. We're not willing to confess with the things that we do, the things that we say. We have a problem in our culture, our church culture, not our culture at large, though there's plenty of problems there too. We have a problem in our church culture, Big C Church, especially in the West, that we are not disciples. We are just bandwagon folks. We're groupies. We'll follow Jesus around wherever he wants to go. Yeah, we love hanging out with him, but we're not willing to give up everything to follow him completely. Jesus has to say this because he's got tons of crowds around him. He's got groupies. He's got plenty of folks following him. And they all have various reasons for coming. And Jesus Jesus never says, you shouldn't come unless you have the right reason. He doesn't care why you come to him. What he cares about is what you do once you come to him. He had folks around him that that were looking for a miracle. They were looking for healing. Maybe they were sick. Maybe their daughter or their son was sick. Maybe they were dying. Maybe their child had already died. And they were looking for healing from him, looking for Jesus to do something to impact their current physical state. Jesus Jesus, Jesus doesn't mind you coming for that. Others, they just wanted to see the show. They wanted to see Jesus casting out demons. They wanted to see him making the blind see. They wanted to eat the meal that Jesus brought out of little more than a lunchable. It feeds 5,000. They they want that kind of stuff. And so that's why they come. They hear about these great things and they just want to see it for themselves. Some people wanted to hear him. They heard that he spoke with such authority, that he was so passionate. And yet his words were true and simple. That, that, that when they heard him speak, it was like hearing God himself speak. You've got to hear this man for yourself. And that's why they came. Jesus was charismatic. Yeah, I mean, let's just face the honest truth. We like to think of this Jesus as like turning, uh, like, like no, nobody comes around me. 
and he's this lone ranger. Maybe he's got these 12 guys around him, and every now and then there's, there's somebody that wants to be around him, but he says, no, 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 you, you're not cool enough. You can't join me. He's, he's, he's the rebel without a cause, almost figure. But that's not Jesus. And Jesus was charismatic. He wanted to be around him. And it's not just two or three people like you see on your Sunday school cards when you were a kid and they were painting and they've got the woman that's going to touch the hem of Jesus' garment and there's like five people in the scene. No, try, try more like 500 people in the scene. Crowds all around them and she's, she's desperately trying to get through and she can't get through because the crowds are pushing her out of the way so they can get closer to Jesus. And finally, she's able to get close enough that she reaches out and barely gets the tip of his garment. He's a charismatic figure, and we forget that. We think that he's this lone ranger, like he's always by himself. No, he has to get up earlier than everybody else to get by himself. He has to go up a mountain to get away from everyone else. Moms with kids, you know the feeling, especially when you have little ones, and they think that the bathroom is not private space. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter where you are. They just want to, it's like a magnet. I don't know. They just like... They just like come in from all over. And whenever you're trying to do something, if you're not doing anything, if you're just sitting there, or if you're saying, hey, come come sit with me. Come give me a hug. Nope, they're, they're gone. But the second you try to cook, or the, the second you're trying to do something, the second you're trying to get away from them, man, it's like they just come straight at you. Yeah. I, well, I have four of them. I should be learning by now. It's that kind of personality of Jesus being so charismatic that he attracts the crowds, and that's not a problem. The problem is that so many of the crowds, once they came to Jesus, just wanted that. They only wanted the show. They only wanted to see the healings. They only wanted to hear the cool speeches. They wanted to hear him put the Pharisees in their place. But they weren't looking to follow him. They weren't looking to commit to him. They brought many expectations of who Jesus ought to be and none of them quite aligned with who he really was. And so Jesus had to, well, he had a mission. He had a mission to die. But before he died, he knew that he needed to put something in place to continue the work that he was starting. He knew that there needed to be somebody prepared to share the gospel that he was sharing after his death and resurrection. And so he was planning a church. He was making disciples. When Jesus says make disciples in Matthew 28, he's not telling us to make disciples because it's a pretty neat idea. He's telling us to make disciples because he did. He's setting the example and he's saying, now follow me. Now you, you've been doing the th kinds of things that I've been doing. You've been watching me. You've been learning from me. Now go do it yourself. I'll empower you. I'll give you the authority. I'll give you the spirit to empower you to do it, but it's time for you to do it. I, I was talking to a couple of folks couple weeks ago and I said if we if we are serious about doing church the way that God wants us to do it we have to be making disciples who are turning around and making other disciples there's no way around it discipleship requires such a total commitment that you are able to invest yourself in someone else it's not just about, am I going to do what Jesus tells me to do between me and him? It's, am I now going to take that spirit of obedience to him? Am I going to take that discipleship relationship and help someone else develop that relationship? Am I going to take what God has taught me and put it into someone else? 
Without that, there, there's no... If, if Christ just wanted to save you, if that was his whole purpose, you know what he would do? He'd come down, he'd save you, and then he'd rapture you up to heaven. Beam me up, Scotty, I'm gone. There'd be no reason for you to be around here anymore. But what he does instead is he takes disciples, people who are totally committed to him, and he invests the kingdom in them and says, now you invested in someone. I'll be with you. I will help you. I'll give you my spirit. You do the work to make the make the, the gospel go forth. Make it continue on from here. It's a total commitment. It's not just saying a prayer, walking an aisle. It's not just getting your name on a roll of a church. It's living life day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, willing and able to do anything and everything that God asks you to do, no matter how high the cost. That's the idea of discipleship. And that's what Jesus is showing them. That's what he's trying to get across to them. That discipleship is expensive. And then he introduces, well, you know, here's the thing. He is intentionally narrowing down his followers to get rid of all the junk, all the people who will not follow him, who, who are just there for the show, and get it down to who's really there serve who's really there to love God and to obey who are the real disciples and who are just the groupies the essence of discipleship Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 3 though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh I have more doesn't he sound humble keep reading circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee. That's right. Paul was a Pharisee. All those, all those people that you, you think, oh, the, all those religious leaders that are just all terrible people. That's Paul's background. As to zeal, persecutor of the church. You don't get any more serious than fighting your enemies and putting them in jail. That's serious zeal. That's that, too, bad, too bad he was persecuting the wrong folks. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. You want to brag? Oh, let's lay out all our cards. Let's see who's got the better hand. Paul says, in every respect from a Jewish mindset, I am perfect before God. I have gained so much. I am so great from that mindset. But, but what happens in verse 7? But whatever gain I have, I count it as loss. What happens between having all the gains and, and enjoying the accolades and the accomplishments of your own works to turning to say, oh, that is garbage. I don't want that anymore. What changes in a man that makes him throw out everything that he's done well, everything that he has put his pride and his hope in and suddenly count it all as trash? I'll tell you what happens to a man. Look at the last word of that verse. That's what happens to a man. The Jesus that he met on the road to Damascus was worth far more than all the other stuff. And because he was worth more, Paul was willing to give all of it up for that one man. He goes on, indeed, I count everything as lost because of what? The surpassing worth, not just the barely more, not just the equal to, but the surpassing. There in math, if you want to say something's greater than, you do the little Pac-Man sign, right? You know, point it to the bigger number. There is a sign with two of those patterns, you know, much greater than. It's not just greater than. It's not just, well, I, 
I checked it out, and this side is worth this much, but this side's worth a penny more. So, so it's not a basic cost analysis of is it better to buy this car or lease this car? You know, let's run the numbers and let's see how it works out. No, 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 there's no comparison. He looks at all that stuff and he looks at Christ and he says, <laughs> I don't even have to do the math. It's like when, uh, when it, in a church business meeting, when everybody raises their hands on eyes and nobody raises their hands for the nays and, and you, don't have to, you don't have to really count. You know, it, it, it's, it's like asking kids, who wants ice cream? Asking most adults who wants ice cream. Of course, some adults are like me, but I really shouldn't. <laughs> right? That's me. I really shouldn't. I, do, I want it, but I really shouldn't. He realizes that Christ is worth far more than everything else. So he goes on. He says, for, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What he's saying is it is far more valuable to follow Christ and give up all the other stuff than to have all the other stuff and not have Christ. You see, when the Jesus that you see is bigger than all the stuff that you're giving up, it's no, there's no comparison. It's, paying the cost is fine. If you think it's worth it, you're willing to pay the price for it. Perhaps our discipleship has been so weak because the Jesus that has been asking us of such a high price is too small in our hearts. Perhaps we haven't seen just how good he is. Perhaps we don't want to see for Paul, discipleship meant giving up everything. His Jewish heritage, his zeal for the Torah, his antagonism against the church, his standing as a Pharisee and likely future member of the Sanhedrin. Every accolade, every source of honor and pride, every false idea about God, everything had to become a pile of garbage before the feet of Jesus. He lost friendships, probably lost family relationships too. Career aspirations gone. Eventually he'd lose his freedom and his very life because of Jesus. It's all because the man on the road to Damascus was worth all of that cost. Is he worth the cost to you? Is he worth your closest relationships, your career aspirations? Is he worth abandoning your most ardently held beliefs that are wrong? Is he worth cost to you? Some people want to be disciples without the cost. Apathetic, cold to the gospel. They, they, they may not say it out loud, but their hymn of choice might go something like this. Some to Jesus I surrender, some to him I begrudgingly give. That's who Jesus is talking to in these two verses. All of that to get to the tasteless salt. Because if you don't understand the, the importance of discipleship and the willingness to give up everything, you're not going to understand the salt without its flavor. Verse 34, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Salt was good for several things. It was good for preserving things. Long before refrigerators, how do you preserve food? Salt. Um, it was good for other things. In fact, that preserving uh, uh, kind of played into a mindset when you're making a covenant with someone, especially an enemy. How do you seal the deal? You sit down with them and you eat bread and salt. Why do you want to eat salt directly? what they did. Why? Because
salt wouldn't. Salt has this idea of purity, fidelity, of permanence. You don't break the covenant with salt. Oh, it's one thing to say, I'm going to try to do that, but not really. But, but when you eat salt, when you, when you make that covenant with someone, you don't break that. Harsh, harsh penalties come against the man who broke the covenant of salt. Oh, and it was not just used with covenants between man. When you offered a grain offering to God, God specifically tells us in Leviticus, don't forget the salt. Salt your grain offering. Why? Because it was a picture to them to show them the permanence of the covenant that they were making with God, that they were renewing with God, that they were re-expressing over and over and over again. Like a, like a renewal of marriage vows reminds you of the vows. It doesn't make a whole new marriage. It just reminds you of what you said the first time and re-ups your commitment to it. In the same kind of way, putting salt on the offering was a way of demonstrating that this is a covenant that I'm not going to break. I am going to keep it permanent. I'm going to keep it pure. I'm going to keep it because God and I have covenanted. It's a fidelity to doing things the right way. That's what salt would speak to in the ancient mind. It was used for babies. Again, a little bit more of that preservation kind of thing. A baby is born, they're salted, and then they're swaddled. It would help clean the impurities from the birthing process off of them. It would also help soften them up a little bit. Babies, when they're first, first born, are not as soft as they are a couple days later. It's because of all the kink. That would help that. You could even, this may be surprising, because you put salt on something, it, it prevents crops from growing, right? But you could even use a little bit of it, just a little bit, in fertilizer. My favorite use, not really my favorite, but one that I was just startled by. If you wanted to burn a pile of manure, put a little salt on it to help it burn. I don't know, I don't know why. I don't know who thinks this manure needs salt. Oh, wow, look at it burn. That's incredible. I don't know who thought of that. Salt is good. Look, look, salt is good. There's something inherently good about salt. It's plentiful. It's common. Sometimes it was used... In, in place of currency, it was so plentiful. Sometimes it was used as, it was thought of as one of the basic elements of life. And yet, if it loses its flavor, it's not good anymore. We don't see this nowadays. Our salt doesn't lose its flavor. It may have an expiration date on the package, but that's just because of laws. It doesn't really expire. Anybody, anybody have salt that's more than 10 years old that they're still using? Anybody? No, nobody wants to admit it. Okay. Nobody, nobody checks that. I checked my thing. We've had a thing of salt for, oh my goodness, at least as long as we've lived in this house, and that's been eight years. And yeah, it's, it's still good, and we're still using it. We're not, I'm sorry, I don't care what the bottom of the thing says. Our salt doesn't degrade with time. Good salt doesn't degrade with time. But in the ancient Near East, they had a problem that salt would sometimes lose its flavor. In fact, Three separate times Jesus talks about this. Look, look, look with me at the other two. Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. They took old salt that didn't have flavor anymore, salt that, that, that had lost its flavor, and they used it to pave streets. They threw it out. It's worthless. Matt, Mark 5, no, I'm sorry, Mark 9, verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. 
add a little bit of seasoning to your words. Make them a little more pleasant. And then here in Luke 14.34, salt is good, but if salt is lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Do you notice a pattern? Every single time Jesus mentions salt, he asks, what good is it if it loses its flavor? None. How can you restore it? You can't. That's a stark warning for us. If you were to be a disciple of Jesus, if you were to be the salt of the earth, you better not lose your flavor. The disciple who loses his flavor is useless in the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. Some of y'all are shaking your head and some of you are just sitting there. The disciple who loses his flavor is useless in the kingdom of God. God doesn't want tasteless salt on his table. And I don't blame him. Would you? I mean, that, isn't that the whole point of having it? So now that begs an important question. How do we lose our flavor? Right? If, if that's such a stark warning, then we better know, okay, how do I avoid this? Well, how does salt lose its flavor? In Israel, you didn't have to go far for salt. There's a sea, the Dead Sea, highest salt content of any water on earth. You see, water from the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea, but it doesn't have anywhere to flow out. And so the water just evaporates. And as the water evaporates, the salt that's in the water just deposits. And so the salt in the Dead Sea is enormously high. In fact, it's so high, it doesn't even support most forms of life. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. Sometimes it's called the Salt Sea. Just on the southern shores, especially, it's more than just the southern shores, but especially on the southern shores, uh, there's, there's like mountains of salt. You just go chip some off a mountain, and you've got salt. The problem is, even though that's a plentiful supply of salt, it's also impure. There's gypsum. There's other elements in there, all kinds of different things in that salt. And what will happen over time is that those things will break down the sodium chloride that is the salt of it. They'll break down those bonds and form other bonds. And so it may look like salt, but it's not salt anymore. And when that happens, it's no longer good to preserve anything. It doesn't have those preservative properties. It doesn't taste at all anymore. You can't even fertilize soil or burn manure piles with it anymore. It's completely useless. And it becomes useless because of impurities. Hear me, church. Hear me. If you are wanting to be a disciple, if you want to be a disciple, you cannot let impurities degrade the bond between you and Christ. Now, impurities, impurities like love for a family, love of your own life. Not, not that it's bad to love your family. But compared to Christ, you better be willing to put them away. You better be willing to give up those family bonds in order to follow Christ. The, the career aspirations that you have, you better be willing to put them up when Christ says, no, some of you are retired. You don't have to worry about careers anymore. But we've all got our impurities, don't we? We all got those things that threaten to break that bond. And if we're not willing to give them up, if we're not willing to sacrifice them on the altar of our hearts and say to God, you are more valuable, you are more important than all of these things, then we cannot be disciples. You know, we, we, we want Jesus as a vacuum attachment when it's convenient. You just put that attachment on and you can use that attachment. And then when it's not convenient, you take it off and you use another attachment for whatever else you're going to do. That's not discipleship. Discipleship means solely and completely you are his. And if anything else gets in the way, that impurity will make you lose your flavor. And what is a disciple without flavor in the kingdom of God? Useless. 
It's no use. Verse 35 says, for the soil or for the manure, it's not, it's not even useful for anything. It's thrown away. Salt without flavor is useless. Disciples without flavor are useless too. They're not really disciples. The Savior is standing, bidding you to come, wash in his blood, find freedom for your sin, and begin a new way of life of learning from him. He, he's calling you to give up to pay the price to be a disciple. It's going to cost you everything. It's a heavy, heavy price. Grace ain't cheap, and it shouldn't be. If the price is too high, don't even, don't even come. You don't know Jesus yet. The impure disciple, the one who has a divided heart, he's worthless, he demands. Jesus demands all. Will you surrender all? If you have not trusted Christ, I implore you, he's worth the cost. He's worth it more than everything he demands of you. Trust him and discover why Paul said he was willing to count everything else as rubbish. I'm going to be up here at the front to help you do that. If you have trusted Christ, examine your heart for impurities. Make sure that there's nothing breaking those bonds, ruining your salt, costing you your flavor. What is it that's keeping you from loving Christ supremely with your whole heart, with your whole soul, with your whole mind, with your whole strength? Get rid of it. Sacrifice it on the altar of your heart. Father, you demand of us so much. I, I'm, I realize that sometimes we, we try to give you half. We try to give you portions. We try to break it apart and say, okay, this is your part and this is my part. We try to section off or create little rooms in our heart. Like, okay, Jesus, these are the rooms you can go in, but I'm going to lock this door so you don't get in here. God, it's not discipleship. That's not discipleship, that's, that's me trying to rule over you. And the whole point of discipleship is that you would rule over me. Disciple means learner. It's the one who sits under and learns. The one who does the assignments, who does the work who does not know and needs to be taught, needs to be shown. It's the whole idea of the word. It's the student. Lord, you are to be the teacher. Give me the student, not the other way around. I, I don't rule you, you rule me. That's discipleship. And what that means is that I have to be willing to give up anything and everything that stands in the way from you ruling in me completely. We all do. We, we all have to be willing to sacrifice it, to give it up, to throw it away, to count it as rubbish. Otherwise, we're tasteless salt. useless. Father, you are the only one I know that can remove impurities. You are the only one I know. You take a broken life and turn it around. You're the only one I know that time and time and time again I can screw up and I can screw up and I can screw up and every single time you are willing and able to forgive 
my stand and walk in your ways. all it takes. Just, just me surrendering everything. No, that's not me alone. That, that's, that's how you deal with all of us. You give us the opportunity to give everything over to you and, and let you have control. Let you rule. Let you be the one in charge. You give us that chance. Forgive us where we fail. Forgive us when we take the reins. Forgive us when we don't give up everything. When we allow things to get in the way between us and you. Forgive us, God. God, help, help us clean out our closets, and our inner spaces. Help us reach deep down to the depths, the miry depths of our souls and to destroy the monsters that lie within. Help us to remove the impurities that will break down our bond with you and prevent us from being useful. Take away the flavor of Christ within our lives and cause us to just be tasteless salt. God, help us to get rid of those things. We may glorify you, that we may honor you, that we may demonstrate you. In this invitation, um, you bid us come. Surrender everything.